right, everyone. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is Tom Salemi. Thank you for joining us. Our guest is John Pavlidis. He is the president and CEO of Vitronis. Vitronis is a, a very cool company. We had John on a panel at last year's MedTech conference. It was a robotics panel, and Vitronis certainly has a robotics element to it. But the really neat part of its approach is its ultrasound energy use. It has a, a catheter-based system that both images and ablates tissue. It's testing it now as a treatment for AFib, but as John will tell you in this podcast, it has other interesting applications. One thing I'd like to emphasize uh, in this conversation, I clumsily use the term surgery, but this is an electrophysiology catheter-based platform. So it, it operates in regular EP labs, not in the surgical suite. So my apologies on that. John was kind enough to remind me of that after the, the interview. So uh, I wanted to make sure that I cleared up any confusion in advance. In addition to uh, talking about Vitronis's uh, very unique and powerful approach, John and I did talk about his uh, the path that led him into medtech. We also talked about his past successes. He led two companies, sold them both, and we talked about the uh, the lessons learned from those uh, those experiences. So, John was a, a great guest. I know you will enjoy this conversation. And thanks for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Just wanted to give you a quick note. We will be opening registration for the upcoming conference, which is happening in Minneapolis on May 31st. So that's just a little heads up. Now let's get into this conversation with John Pavlidis, the president and CEO of Vitronis. John Pavlidis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. So we were we did we met a couple of years ago. You were in a robotics panel that I did at the MedTech conference in 2016, I believe. Yeah. So yes, last year. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. So uh is I'm glad we we were able to sort of introduce your story there, uh in Vitronis's story there. But I wanted to follow up on your progress. I know you had some some great news as of late, but at the start of each podcast, what I really like to do is, is focus on the guests and just sort of understand how you got to where you are today. So give us a little bit about your, a little bit of your backstory. How did you find your way into, into MedTech? Absolutely. So um, I've always had a, a passion for healthcare. For a while, I contemplated going to medical school, ah. but um, engineering sort of won. And um, I, was, I admit I'm a nerd. <laughs> um, Thank God someone is. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I have uh, you know, both a bachelor and a master's degree in biomedical engineering. So that was sort of my best effort to combine my passion for healthcare and my love of engineering. So I really care about everything from prevention to early detection and diagnosis to improving treatment outcomes, um, disease management, and ultimately prolonging health. So, so um, how did you find I got your... into medtech from by um, uh, biomedical engineering background? Ah. How did you find your way into the sector? I know you were you were with Siemens for a period of time, but uh, you, I know you did some some work before that as well. What was your first gig in, in medtech? So uh, after grad school, I was contemplating continuing for a PhD. So actually, my first paying job was a research associate. I was working on a fascinating um, neurosurgery project to frameless stereotactic neurosurgery at Dartmouth College with wow. one of the outstanding neurosurgeon, uh, Dr. David Roberts. And in that process, I was exposed to medical imaging. We used a lot of MRI and CT. 
and the MRI system happened to be from Siemens back. I'm dating myself now, but this is back in the um, mid eighties and uh, MRI was a brand new modality. Mm -hmm. So I applied to Siemens and I've actually never truly practiced engineering. My first job was actually (laughs) in sales support and outbound marketing for MRI. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it was a great experience because it was sort of a startup within a big company because MRI was so new and exciting at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a very small but very cohesive and dynamic uh, team within obviously a very, very large conglomerate. So you were at at one point president of the ultrasound group. Were you at Siemens that whole time? Did you work your way up uh, from the bottom to the top? I did. I did. So it was kind of a I guess a bit of a risk taker. So I stayed for 10 years in MRI, but in various roles. So I started in outbound marketing. Mm-hmm. Then I did actually field sales. I, I, I had a quota uh, in Southern California. And um, I then actually moved to Germany where I was uh, doing product management and helping to design the next generation systems. Then I came back to the U.S. Uh, to run the whole MRI business in the U.S. for Siemens, including the launch of the new products that I helped to create. And 10 years of that um, had made me uh, kind of an arrogant MRI expert. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there was an opportunity to actually globally lead ultrasound. Uh, And at the time I thought, oh my goodness, ultrasound, that's MRI, so much more sophisticated. Well, little did I know because ultrasound actually is extraordinarily complex and it's close to magic that you get these beautiful images today out of um, portable, even handheld ultrasound machines. So I ran Siemens ultrasound for five years, uh, including the acquisition of Acuson back in 2000, shortly after I started, uh, because it was obvious that in order for us to uh, become from number five, either number one or, or number two, we had to grow uh, inorganically via an acquisition. So at what point did you decide to enter the startup world? And, and what was that process like? Did, did an offer come your way? Did you just decide you wanted to try something different? Uh, how did that come to fruition? Yes. So I started, uh, I was happy at Siemens, uh, running ultrasound and also with some visibility to future opportunities within the company. So at the time, I could have seen myself just retiring at Siemens, if mm-hmm. you will. But a very, um, what I felt at the time, a very exciting, uh, risky, of course, um, opportunity at a startup came along in an area that I felt could really make a difference in people's lives, and that was in mammography. Um, and I had the opportunity to join uh, R2 Technology, the pioneer and leader in computer-aided detection of ultrasound, of, of sorry, of uh, breast cancer mm-hmm. from mammograms. Sure. And I felt you know, that was a PMA-approved device. It was the market leader. Um, the company had had some turmoil, so at the time it was a bit of a turnaround, but I felt it was uh, worthwhile enough of, of a risk to try running a venture-backed company um, and experience what... Uh, Cash flow problems could be like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone wants to experience that. Did you go in as the CEO and, and president? I did. Uh-huh. I did. So I, w- I was brought in as the president and CEO. And um, through a combination of uh, 
building out uh, the the management team, attracting some uh, talent, uh, and of course leveraging on the phenomenal technology and people that R2 already had. Um, we ended up also had we had some luck in, along the way. We were acquired by uh, Hologic, um, the the leader in women's health uh, at the time, and I believe I believe still today. Um, in the process, we had to navigate a very challenging transition from analog, so film-based mammography to mm-hmm. digital mammography. Um, and yeah, it all came together, and uh, to this day, we, we can, uh, computer aid detection for breast cancer continues to save lives. I've never asked this question directly, but I, I got an answer to the question from uh, a previous guest. Uh, do you recall, I'm sure you, even you, <laughs> made some mistakes as first-time CEO. Do you recall any of them in particular? And uh, what were the lessons you took away from that? Oh, my goodness. Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> just pick, just so, pick one. Well, in general, one of the, you know, the things that you learn at big companies, which I think are really, really helpful, um, are the importance of strategy, process, uh, global reach and scale. Um, and frankly, as president of uh, even MRI in the U.S. or ultrasound globally, uh, I could make a million-dollar mistake and find a way to recover. And uh, at a small company, um, what really you need to learn very quickly is the importance of focus, capital efficiency with with, uh, tight cash management, speed, and adaptability. So on one hand, I enjoy the ability to uh, make decisions quickly. At the same time, when a lot of structure and process is not in place, um, if you don't have clarity for your team, you can really confuse them. So in terms of defining the next product direction, uh, certainly we sort of zigzagged a little bit as we navigated the the digital mammography landscape because we went from selling hardware and software to individual practices to mostly selling a CD with software as an add-on to the big OEMs. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it was selling to Hologic, selling to Siemens, selling to GE. And um, we it was great for gross margin, <laughs> but it was really tough on the top line because roughly speaking, based on the price points for selling a complete package, including a lot of hardware, to selling a CD, it's almost a three-to-one ratio. So to stay flat in revenue, you have to sell three times the volume. Ah, that makes sense. So that, that was tough to navigate, and, and uh, along the way, it, it took some while to figure it out. But thankfully, I had a great team, and they helped me from making too many mistakes. That's a good one. So from there, you, you must have done something right because you got another CEO job. Uh, did you go directly to endoscopic technologies from there? I did. I did. The, the, the biggest investor in um, R2 had been Morgan Stanley Ventures, and um, the, the, their lead investor there, uh, Scott Halstead, was, uh, had left Morgan Stanley by then and had started a new um, venture, mostly focusing on secondary mm-hmm. investments. Yep. And um, Estec was part of the portfolio that they acquired um, by acquiring a, a bunch of uh, equity positions uh, in companies that Boston Scientific right, invested in, and then thereafter divested. So that was my 
exposure into, um, as, as my imaging friends like to say, in, into the, the bloody side of things. <laughs> so uh, it was minimally invasive cardiac surgery with a big focus on atrial fibrillation surgery um, with, with small incisions or port access, so not the cracking the chest open with median sternotomy. And we had some great technology, some innovative um, things we did there, uh, and that led to the company's acquisition by Atricure uh, about five years later. Of uh, the company as it was at the time, and in the process, because we realized we had some solutions, for example, for coronary artery bypass or uh, cannula and things like that, we sold some of the assets along the way to companies like Soren and Terumo, and then Atricure purchased essentially the, uh, the rest of the company that was focused on atrial fibrillation. Interesting. So did you know that uh, an acquisition, I assume you did, I mean, acquisition, M&A is, is the, the most common way out, but do, do you build a company to be acquired or do you build a company to be a standalone business? Yeah, I think it's always dangerous to build the company with certain assumptions beyond your control in mind, right? So um, obviously, venture-backed companies, uh, their most likely path is to be acquired, uh, perhaps IPO, less likely for sure, but uh, conceivable, depending on market and other factors. So um, my philosophy has always uh, been to try to build value and build a company that can uh, continue and, and be uh, as strong as possible without expecting to be acquired at any given time. Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I think you have to think longer term. And if an acquisition comes along the way, great, of course. But um, I think you have to focus first on building an attractive uh, asset that somebody will want to buy. And then and the rest happens. Is, is value in the... In the eye of the beholder, does everyone value companies the same way or do, does the strategic value things differently than a VC firm would? Oh, great question. Um, certainly, um, you know, the best companies get bought, right? Sure. And, and in order to get acquired, not sold. So if you get acquired, then um, hopefully you can create some competitive uh, tension. So mm -hmm. more than one interested party, that, that's always uh, the best way to do it. And it really depends on their needs. Most often, you find that uh, companies buy uh, with, with sort of an, an offensive uh, in, in mind, wanting to grab more market share, wanting to expand into a new space. Sometimes they make defensive moves as well if they feel that somebody, uh, if a competitor had the asset, they could uh, inflict some damage. But by and large, I think it's really based on opportunity and um, portfolio expansion new channel, uh, leveraging the existing sales channel that's always very expensive to build and, and, and adding products to it. I'd like to take a quick break from this conversation with John Pavlidis to invite you all to attend our upcoming Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's happening on November 30th in Boston. I know you may roll your eyes back at the mention of digital health because you think it doesn't apply, but it does. As we uh, talked about in recent podcasts, including last week's with Worrell, digital health is finding its way into medtech. So the best thing is to figure out how. 
and to understand how technology is impacting healthcare providers. So you will want to be there. Go to healthag.com, that's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com, and take a look at the agenda for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. We are not done yet. We have a, uh, a major announcement coming out regarding the summit, so I hope you will uh, consider joining us. If you do choose to attend, you can use your MedTech Talk code to save yourself a little bit of money off the registration. Now let's get back into this conversation with John Pavlidis of Vitronis. After the the acquisition uh, or the the purchase by Atricure of Endoscopic Technologies, that was in 2013, you joined end of thirteen and transitioned. Also, I had uh, I continued on for part of fourteen. Okay, so that's answering my question. What happened in that that gap year that you had in between the two companies? I thought maybe you just took a took a sabbatical and and, and kicked your feet up on the well, table. Well, I, I did. I did have the chance to take some time off, and, that's good. and uh, I had the opportunity to also be uh, selective with, with what uh, opportunity to um, go for next. And it was a, just a great combination, uh, Vitronus really combines what I know about ultrasound mm-hmm. and what I've learned about uh, atrial fibrillation and how difficult a, a disease it is to manage and treat. So it, it's, it's really the, the perfect combination. I, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time when the company was looking for a new CEO. So tell us about Vitronis. This seems to be a great opportunity, chance to, to get into to the company's story. What are, what are you folks trying to do? So we are building a, a revolutionary platform for robotic ablation and 3D mapping that we believe will really transform the treatment of AF, uh, atrial fibrillation, that is, and also has uh, is a real platform for expanding into ventricular tachycardia treatment, VT for short, mm-hmm. uh, even renal, renal denervation applications, we believe it's just a very powerful platform. Oh, really? We're starting by focusing on atrial fibrillation. That's right. And building automation, reproducibility, precision, high quality that is less dependent on the operator for for getting uh, great results with uh, just uh, knock on wood, uh, excellent safety and efficacy. How has ultrasound changed from your time at Siemens to now? Well, most of my experience in ultrasound was with uh, machines that really focused on high-resolution imaging uh, of various uh, anatomies. I mean, uh, ultrasound is, is a great modality because you can really image just, just about everything but the nervous system, <laughs> right? So you can't do the brain except tiny, tiny, through tiny cracks in the, mm-hmm. in the skull with Doppler. Um, and, but everything else it has numerous applications for, you know, in radiology, cardiology, obstetrics, gynecology, vascular. So it has numerous applications. Um, we use ultrasound uh, in a novel um, approach to ultrasound with what we call low-intensity collimated ultrasound. So we're not trying to get a, huge, a big picture of the liver or anything like that or the heart. We have a, a, a narrowly um, collimated beam that can image about six centimeters or so deep. And the same device, and that's a big part of the novelty, can also ablate. So wow. it can use high enough energy to actually burn tissue, 
uh, and create SCAR, which is uh, the mechanism of action for, for ablation. Um, on top of that is if that weren't uh, challenging enough, we, we built in electromagnetic sensors into our device. So we know with roughly millimeter accuracy where we are in space and inside the patient. And on top of that, we have robotic guidance to do things that actually are, you know, are much more people dependent and we can remove operator skill and training to a large extent from the equation. Uh, the, the, the electrophysiologist does still what people do best, which is insert catheters into the body, cross the septum, get it to the atrium. And then our automation uh, does a lot of the, the work, including 3D mapping. So we create a beautiful high-resolution CT quality, uh, like 3D map of the inside of the left atrium in under five minutes. Uh, with high resolution, I mean, and under um, a minute and a half in, in, in course resolution. So very fast and automated that gives the electrophysiologist the lay of the land. And then when they want to do um, an ablation, they plan a lesion by drawing, literally using the mouse and drawing uh, lines on the 3D map that we have created without exposure to fluoro. Um, and in a very flexible, interactive way. They can draw essentially any pattern that they would like in a suitable area that the catheter can quote-unquote see uh, with ultrasound. And then our system traces that path uh, automatically, robotically. In the process, collects a lot of you know, motion and um, tissue thickness information with the only technology that can see tissue thickness and, and tailor the dose to that thickness. And then once the electrophysiologist hits, hits go, they actually start ablating the path that they drew uh, at a recommended dose that we come up with or a dose that they can uh, modify as well to, to help make continuous, durable transmural lesions and uh, tremendous flexibility, but reduced operator dependence, um, which is, is really uh, remarkable to see. So I was going to make a, a some somewhat crude comparison to a, a self-parking car where you get the car to the space and let the car take over and park the car. In this case, this, the, they're getting the, the catheter to the space and the product is able to perform that procedure on its own after the, the mapping by the, by the physician. But it also has the capabilities to see even more than others can currently see today. So, so presumably in addition to doing the job that a surgeon can do, you can actually do a better job? Yes. So um, the, the goal is to be able to get the technology, and that's what we, we're very much achieving, is to get the system to perform as well as the experts, and for an expert, make their life easier and the mm -hmm. procedure easier, and for a less experienced operator, make them as good as the experts. Interesting. How do the societies and, and physicians feel about this technology? What kind of feedback are you getting? Oh, we're getting uh, tremendous feedback. I mean, there's just initially some people, you know, there's disbelief. Wow, you can really do this? Mm -hmm. Sure. Because <laughs> right? it's, it's, it's the very um, advanced. Again, combining imaging, robotic navigation, mm -hmm. and therapy delivery uh, all in one uh, platform. Um, but the, the next... 
uh, reaction is is excitement. Wow, um, I can really see how this will be useful. There's no question in medicine, just like in other fields, robotics, automation, artificial intelligence, in many ways will play a bigger, a bigger role. And what we believe differentiates us from other robotics type of technologies is that we feature some intelligent automation. It's it's much beyond teleoperation. So it's not as if a physician with a beautiful 3D image in front of them and very precise controls can make some movements, which then the robot repeats inside the patient's body. We actually create the 3D maps um, automatically. We automatically, because we're using ultrasound that is, does not have to touch the tissue to ablate, we automatically get the distance information. We get motion information because the heart is obviously beating. We have intelligent dosing that really adjusts for the distance and the tissue depth um, of, of the tissue we're trying to penetrate. Uh, the system delivers the lesion based on a prescribed path. And uh, last but not least, much less fluoro than typical procedures and a short learning curve. We found it's two or three procedures and, and they get the hang of it. Is the imaging system used only with the surgical system, or is it also going to be used in some kind of diagnostic capacity? It's really part of the same solution. Sure. It's really a, a, a full suite of eyes-on tools, right, mm -hmm. incorporating real-time dynamic imaging, tissue distance, thickness sensing, dosing, and also because our imaging beam is, is larger than is longer than therapy beam, um, we can see extra, extra cardiac structures, which give us opportunity for enhanced safety. Fantastic. So yeah. what kind of uh, progress are you seeing on the clinical front? Where are you with trials? And uh, do you have some results that you've announced recently, or do you anticipate announcing something in the near future? Yeah, so, so far, uh, Tom, we have done a lot of um, work in a feasibility type of environment at a single center with multiple operators. So, so up to five different operators have used our technology, and we've done about 50 patients. Uh, with very nice safety and efficacy results. And we're really on the cusp of transitioning early next year to a multi-center environment, multi-center study towards CEMARC. And we're using that uh, data as a feasibility data toward a U.S. pivotal IDE. Fantastic. And, and, the, and the path for IDE is pretty well defined. Other companies have gone through this. Mm -hmm. uh, already three technologies three energy source types, if you will, so RF, multiple catheters, um, cryo, and laser have gone through this process. So it's thankfully not a mystery uh, of what we'll need to do for similar claims. And um, uh, the good news is we won't need to go to panel. That's great. What about the reimbursement side of things? Do you need anything new there or are those in place as well? So in, in uh, all the major markets, those are very much in place, uh, the reimbursement codes and DRGs. So uh, the reimbursement is very much, um, thankfully, it's um, very good uh, with sort of global codes, both for inpatient and outpatient procedures uh, in most markets. Uh, there is, because it's a very tough disease to treat, and technology uh, – has made numerous improvements. I mean, this is a very active space and a lot of people are doing some great work in this area. 
roughly speaking, the efficacy for paroxysmals has stayed in multi-center uh, studies in the mid-60s, mm-hmm. right? Um, and there's definitely signals, especially as we transition to a more value-based, outcomes-based uh, type of reimbursement system, that there will be pressure and reimbursement for second and third and fourth procedures on the same patient, which are not uncommon today, but we believe there will be even more impetus for higher first procedure efficacy. And although we have a small sample, uh, our, our data is very encouraging in that regard. We believe we make continuous, durable lesions, uh, very flexible lesions, and we also isolate a lot of tissue, uh, even for paroxysmal patients. So we do wide area circumferential ablations, WACA for short, mm-hmm. um, because they've shown to be better for the patient in terms of isolating more arrhythmogenic tissue than, for example, a balloon could do because they are placed in the vein and the lesions they make are very close to the vein. Wow, that's terrific. So what, and it's a very nice description of what you do. Uh, Where are you with, I guess the final question is, where are you with financing? You had some success last year. You raised a $49 million Series C. Uh, first, first of all, any advice for those raising money out there? That's a, that's a good amount of money. And second of all, secondly, tell us how long that's going to carry you and and what your future capital plans are. Absolutely. So, well, first of all, we're, we're very, um, very fortunate because we have some, uh, phenomenally supportive and very, very strong investors. So NEA has been an investor in the company for the longest time, essentially since the beginning. And they've been tremendous to work with. Uh, and Apple Tree Partners joined the syndicate at the end of 2014 uh, with a new infusion of capital together uh, with NEA and several others. So Biostar Ventures is an investor, uh, Wyndham mm-hmm. Venture Partners, as well as uh, Abbott is a strategic investor. Eg- equity uh, only, pure you know venture type of investor without any uh, special uh, rights or, or privileges. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a very, very strong syndicate. Uh, at the same time, uh, what we're doing is capital intensive. So in many ways, we're always fundraising. Sure. So uh, we, we, uh, we're aiming for key milestones in the next couple of years. And uh, we're, we're in good shape but are always uh, active talking to people who can uh, join the syndicate and be around also for later uh, running a pivotal IDE and so on. Interesting. What do you share with investors? I know coincidentally or, or, or ironically, we were supposed to talk at an earlier time. You, you had an investor meeting at the time, so you had to take that meeting, of course. What are those conversations like when you're not raising money? Is it just a, very much a conversation like this? You're bringing folks up to speed on, on what's going on or what, what kind of data are you able to share with interested investors? Well, our approach is, first of all, the good news is um, our technology is so compelling. Our approach is so unique. There's really nothing like this uh, on the horizon. Uh, and it's so transformative. Of course, there's, there are incremental improvements here mm-hmm. and there, and there have been, and there will continue to be, and we, we respect those. But in terms of this, um, it doesn't take that long to get the first meeting. Now, some people are more interested in uh, commercialization and so on. But by and large, we try to stay in front um, and have really frequent and open communication with people uh, and groups who we believe would be um, good additions to the syndicate. So at the right time, 
uh, they, they'll be able to, to step in. Great. Good, good yeah. point of view. So it's, a continue, it's a continuing dialogue, uh, staying on people's radar and making sure that um, we convey our enthusiasm. <laughs> because <laughs> this is truly transformative. And hopefully I've done that. You've done that. No, you've today. done a great job. And, you, and you've, you've done a nice job telling it succinctly as well. Sometimes you can, you can say too much. And I think you've, you've really crafted a great story there. So uh, I'm glad you're, you're seeing success. And uh, Thank you. look forward to following your success coming in the future. Really appreciate it, Tom. It's been very good talking with you. Well, that is a wrap, everyone. John Pavlidis of Vachonis, thank you for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. I really did enjoy hearing about Vachonis' approach, and I will reiterate that it's not surgery. It's the EP Labs where Vachonis' technology will hopefully someday be used. MedTech Talk podcast listeners, if you would not mind doing us a few favors. Number one, subscribe to the MedTech Talk podcast. It'd be great if you had these podcasts and future podcasts sent directly to your listening devices. Number two, give us a ranking on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast, iTunes, etc. It's a great way to help others find the podcast. Number three, just tell folks about the podcast. The more people listening, the better. The numbers keep going up and we're grateful for that. Finally, I always enjoy hearing from our listeners. Please do shoot me an email. It's tom at healthag.com. That is the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Healthag is the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast and our MedTech conference and the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, and we'll be having many, many more events. So I hope you will uh, reach out and say hello. Finally, don't forget to check out the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit happening on November 30th. And make sure you circle the date, May 31st in Minneapolis. We'll be having our MedTech conference on that day, and we definitely want to see you there. That's it, folks. Tune in next week. We've got another great tale of innovation all lined up for you.